You know, one of the things that occurs in humans' minds naturally is something I actually read about in Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. We tend to ascribe a lot more significance in a variety of ways to things that happened more recently, in part because we remember them. And as you and, and that makes us think that they're either more significant or they're one of a kind or nothing like this ever happened before and on and on and on. But history is really important, especially when you're talking about the operation of a country, when you're talking about about politics and what should happen next and what might happen next and what it means for the longer term. So thinking about American history, especially in the context of this still incredibly controversial, at least among certain circles, election that we're dealing with right now, I thought it'd be fun to talk about close and controversial elections in the past. So joining us to do just that, Rick Green, columnist, former uh, Texas state representative as well, and wrote a really interesting piece a few days back that I saw over at stream.org entitled What Three Contentious Presidential Elections from U.S. History Tell Us About How 2020 May End. So, Rick, good morning and thanks for being here. Ross, good to be with you. Of all the interviews I've done, you're the first one to point out uh, that we don't really have that novel a situation here. Now, I wish I had used the C.S. Lewis quote in my article, let us not begin by over-exaggerating the novelty of our circumstances. You nailed it, man. <laughs> well, good. I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm probably not quite the student of history that you are, but a little bit. And, um, you know, as they say, it, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And I think a lot of folks even forget that it rhymes. So when you look at the current election, um, why don't you just go through and, and pick a few other interesting maybe close, controversial elections. And let, let's just go through a couple of them, talk about what you see as the key similarities and, and maybe the key differences as well. You bet. I, you know, and I think it is so important for us to realize uh, that, you know, we've been through this kind of thing before, not to freak out, right, and, and to realize there's a process here, uh, that there are constitutional solutions here as well. And, uh, and, and if we uphold the rule of law and we uphold the Constitution, then people can be confident in the outcome. If we ignore those things, or we don't have transparency, or we don't have verification of ballots, or the, and there's no remedies when there's violations, that's when you get into a lack of trust in the elections and therefore a lack of trust in the government itself. So it's so important to have context in history and, and look at these these uh, past elections as well. And there were quite a few in the last century. I mean, of course, everybody uh, that's that's my age and older remembers the Bush-Gore race uh, of, of 2000. Mm-hmm. I was in the state legislature in Texas on that one. And and, uh, you know, even that one was uh, nothing compared to some of these in the 1800s. The, even the 1800 election between Jefferson and Adams went to the House and the state delegations had to ultimately decide that race uh, because of the Electoral College. And we fixed that piece with the 12th Amendment. But then in 1824, again, you had a race where nobody got a majority in the Electoral College. And so the House had to decide. And in that case, you had a, the, the guy that was winning by a lot was Andrew Jackson. And he had 13 more electoral votes. He had more than a 10 percent advantage in the uh, popular vote. And he really thought the House was going to vote for him, but the Constitution allows the delegations in the House to decide from the top three electoral vote getters, and they chose John Quincy Adams. Uh, He was very upset about that, obviously, and campaigned for four years about how it was, you know, there was deals done behind the scenes and all this, and ended up coming back and and beating JQA in, uh, in 1828. But I think the one that's closest to us is 1876. That's the one where uh, it was so chaotic and so crazy, and there were so many accusations of fraud and different things. 
that you actually ended up uh, you had a, a close win on a, on election, you know, right at the beginning with with Samuel Tilden. He was only one electoral vote shy of winning. Hmm. And there were three states that ended up sending in two different sets of electors. And wow. so you had a lot of confusion and, and, and people claiming that that Tilden had won and people claiming that that Hayes had won. And so uh, he even had a, an electoral vote out of Oregon that was challenged. So it was a total of 20 electoral votes um, that, that, you know, were really in dispute. And so Congress actually did something a little different in that one. They created a commission, actually, you know, got into session, passed a law and created a commission with five House members, five Senate members and five Supreme Court justices. And, and they investigated all of it and they ultimately awarded the 20 electoral votes to Rutherford B. Hayes. And he ended up winning by one electoral vote. And again, you know, lots of claims of this, it wasn't the right outcome. And there was quite a quite a split. But they you know, the, the reason that it created such conflict is because in those states, there there wasn't a lot of transparency and there wasn't a lot of, you know, uh, remedies in place. We've got remedies now. We mm-hmm. have systems in place. That's the reason for these court battles. You know, I, I think the Bush-Gore race was a, a good example of allowing us to work through the process. It took 30, you know, six, 37 days to do that. Now, granted, that was one state. In this election, we're dealing with seven or eight states at high contention. Uh, there are a lot of problems out there. It's almost like whack-a-mole trying to keep you know <laughs> keep up with all the different situations. So this one's more complicated in in that regard. But the process itself is not that much more complicated. And should they not get through all of those legal remedies and the, get to the Supreme Court and uphold the rule of law and the Constitution? State legislatures have the ultimate power here. The Constitution puts this in their hands. They could turn around and either redo the elections in some of these states. That's not unheard of. Just did that last year, in fact, in North Carolina with a race for Congress where mail-in ballots became such an issue that the the, the judge said, we we can't determine who won. The well's been poisoned. And so they redid the election. So that's not unheard of. It would be tough. It would be difficult, but it could be done in, Mm -hmm. in some of these states. And they could also send new electors. So there's a lot of solutions but uh, but yeah, history can teach us a lot about this. And I didn't mention the 1888 when that one was was also very crazy. And you had places where 105 percent of the population voted. So fraud is not new. Irregularities, not new. Uh, and, and if you really want to give people confidence, make sure that you can see every vote, count every vote, verify every vote and give people a chance to challenge that if they need to for legal remedies. And they'll have confidence in the election. Yeah, you, you actually answered in a few different places so one one of the questions I've been thinking about, which is, for example, Bush v. Gore. So like you say, that was one state, and it was, it was basically two sides of the same coin in terms of the issue. There were, there were undervotes and there were overvotes, and because of the design of the ballots, it basically, in, basically in two different ways, it, it was hard to tell some voters' intent and they had to try to figure out, you know, what particular ballots meant. It's a it's a very different situation from what's going on today. But the bigger question to me is, in in how many of the elections was it controversial because it was so close, and versus people really not trusting that the vote count was the true vote count? Yeah. That's a great question because 1824 would have been really just because it was so close. Uh, 1876 and 1888 was was very much what you just described, that, that people really didn't trust that the outcome was accurate, that there was too much fraud. They were they were paying people to vote. There was all kinds of things 
that happened. And I think that has a closer feel to what's happening right now. And and I love the way you just described that because that's in Florida, you know, everybody understood what they were trying to figure out in the recount. You were trying to figure out, did that voter actually intend to cast a vote in the presidential race for Bush or Gore? And it was the famous hanging chads. And Uh uh, I had my own experience with those chads two years before that, my own recount was in 1998. I'd run for the legislature and lost by 20 votes out of 30,000 and asked for a recount like the law allowed me to. We ended up, after the recount, I won by 36 votes. Wow. And I said to my opponent, I said, and, and we both watched every, I mean, we looked at every single one of those 30,000 ballots. And my opponent said, you know, I said, look, the law allows you to, to challenge this and ask for another recount, go in for a second recount. He's like, Rick, why would I do that? We looked at every ballot already. We trust the outcome. You won. And so nobody had to, you know, nobody's claiming cheating. Nobody, it was, it was a great process for, Mm -hmm. you know, verifying the vote and having that transparency. And, uh, but, but it was easier to determine um, when it was all about just looking at every ballot. Now you've got a situation where, okay, can we look at every ballot? And how do we even know for sure in some of these states, based on the testimony and the affidavits, if the ballots that we're looking at were legally cast? And then we know that even above and beyond that, even if every, if, even if there was zero fraud, we had election officials breaking the law by rewriting the rules and creating these election schemes that were totally against their state laws and, and, and unconstitutional because it was the executive branch in those states doing this when the Constitution absolutely, in Article 1, Section 4, gives the authority to the state legislature. That's why every state has an elections committee. Every, you know, every legislative session, mm-hmm. our legislators de- debate these things. You know, They look for ways to make the election better. They tweak it. And they're the ones that are supposed to do that. And so uh, the breaking of the law and not allowing both sides to see the ballots, to not have that, that transparency and verification, uh, those are real, real problems. And they do create, um, you know, not just problems for this election. I, you know, Russ, what I'm afraid of is if we don't pursue every one of these to the full extent of the law and be able to say, OK, look, this is what the final outcome really was. We're actually putting future elections in jeopardy. Because if there was fraud and cheating and they got away with it because we walked away from it, they're just encouraged to do more of that. And if there wasn't fraud and cheating, then let's let's discover that and restore some of the faith in the process. My special guest, Rick Green, served in the Texas state legislature. He's also a columnist, got a really good piece up at stream.org entitled, What Three Contentious Presidential Elections from U.S. History Tell Us About How 2020 May End. I want to follow up on what you are talking about here, because you've been through this yourself. And I feel like if if you watch Twitter and you watch social media right now, there's there's absolutely no middle ground in this conversation. And I find myself just being tarred and feathered every day by trying to take a middle ground in, in the sense that I do believe there is election fraud. I do believe keep people cast ballots for their dead relatives and stuff. I be- I believe this stuff happens. Um, I mean, I lived in Chicago for a long time. I know there's election fraud. I very much doubt that there's enough election fraud in this election to get close to flipping even one state, much less three that President Trump would need to flip. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't try to track down and harshly punish any election fraud that they can find. They should. But what troubles me the most, Rick, and what I want to get your take on, again, as a guy who is seems to be quite level headed and, you know, just based on the conversation you had with your opponent in that in that recount. 
I see all these people running around, including the president, saying, you know, that Trump won, that there's massive fraud and we're going to prove it tomorrow, um, that all of this stuff happened, that there's no evidence for. And it feels to me like Trump supporters are really risking an incredible amount of damage to the country, uh, not by pursuing fraud. I want them to pursue it if they can find it but yeah. by making enormous claims against the election system and and um, private companies with no evidence, and it really bothers me. Yeah, I think the only part of that I would push back on is whether or not there's evidence. We don't know yet that that's why this process takes time. It takes investigation. It, t- it may take a lawsuit where you got to have discovery to to figure that out, especially with the with the you know the private entity and the. And the, and the computer models and, and those things, I, I think that's just going to take time to figure out. And they claim they have some of that evidence already. Um, and there is, I would say this, I mean, there are thousands of, of people coming forward with with testimony and affidavits. And, and I mean, that's evidence. They're, they're saying this happened. And in many cases, it's 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 a it's a breaking of the law and not allowing people to see voting. So you're right. That may turn out to be not actual, you know, not, not enough of an actual difference in those votes. Uh, but you have to see that stuff through. And, and I don't know if they're overplaying their hands or not. You know, I'm not yeah. in those in those rooms. These are some, you know, these are some really respected folks like Sydney Palmer. She's speaking very confidently that they have stuff. She is. I think we have to give them time to to, to show that and to and to prove that. Um, and, and, you know, I do think there's so, some of the statements that are being made, not by necessarily Trump or his his team, but some groups out there, I think, are premature to say that, you know, if, if Biden ends up being president, I won't follow any of the laws passed and that sort of thing. I think that's premature. You, you've got to, I mean, you've got to let this thing play out. And and if there's not evidence, then you can't, you can't say that it was stolen or that there was cheating or anything like that. So they've got to find the evidence, which so far they found a ton of evidence. And you hit on the key question, is it going to be enough to overturn the election? I think in some of these states, there is enough. I, th- I think in, in Georgia, there's a good chance that after this hand recount, I mean, I know that first batch, it's, you know, 20 that they found, with an 800 vote difference, well, that's only about 10 percent of what they would have to find uh, to overturn that one. But there's some cases where you know they're claiming there are people claiming, and again, I don't know if it's true, but there are people claiming you know tens of thousands of votes that that got dropped in the middle of the night or that could be fraudulent. And so that's what they've got to find out. I would argue, though, even without fraud, even if you don't prove any of the fraud, mm-hmm. breaking the law with these election schemes and breaking the law with sending Republicans home and only Democrats counting or not allowing Republicans to see the votes, that alone is enough for a court to throw out those results or for a legislature to step in and say, hey, guys, we can't have faith in the outcome of this election, so we're doing a redo or we're going to choose the electors ourselves, which is a power they have under the Constitution, and the Supreme Court has said that a couple of times in decisions. I hear you. I'll bet you a beer that that does not happen in any state in the United States of America this year. Uh, uh, it, I mean, I don't know if you're saying you think that's likely. You're, I don't I don't know that you're saying that. I, I think every state will certify on time in a normal process, and not one single state will redo any federal election, at least. I don't know if there's some, like, county commissioner issue somewhere that might have to be redone, but I, I don't think any of that stuff will happen, and I just think, unfortunately, Joe Biden will be inaugurated. Well, the odds are in your favor, so you would have to bet me a beer against a, a six-pack uh, or, something. or something like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, 
But I, I would say, you know, look, we just redid an election in, in North Carolina last year for Congress. I mean, that was a federal election, and that was based on absentee ballots and, and no way to determine uh, what the actual legal outcome was. So that's yeah. not unheard of. I realize a statewide election in one of these that, that's most in question, like Michigan or, or Pennsylvania, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough haul, you know, for them to do that. But it could uh, it could certainly be done. And, and then with regards to the legislature stepping in and doing that, I mean, uh, you know, they're just, they almost did it in Florida in 2000. I mean, they were literally on the edge of, of pressing that trigger. And that was part of why, you know, we the, the discussions even took place that they had the power to do that. I mean, most people aren't even aware that that's in the hands of the legislature. Right. And they Pennsylvania already said, sorry, we're almost out of time. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Pennsylvania, yeah, no, 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 no. The, the Pennsylvania legislature, which is Republican, already said they won't they won't do that. Let me see if we can end on um, a very strong point of agreement. I, I, I propose that separate from the outcome of this election and more important than the outcome of this presidential election is long term confidence by Americans that we can trust our elections. And well, I'll just I'll just say that I think that's the most important thing. What do you think? I completely agree with you. This is no longer about Trump or Biden. It's very much about the Constitution and the rule of law and confidence in the elections. And somehow, some way, you know, and I don't have the solution for how we get to this point because of the divide in the country, because of the, you know, I mean, the, the, the censorship and the media. I mean, all the things that, that are happening in the country, it's going to be hard to get there. But getting to a place where both sides can agree that transparency is absolutely vital, uh, that they agree to, you know, having these verification processes and not shouting each other down when one, one person calls for a verification or, or calls for legal remedies. I mean, that should just simply be respected as a part of this process because both sides want truth and want the actual outcome. I don't feel like we, we're there. Uh, we, we don't have that right now. And, yeah. and as Americans, we should be pulling for each other, regardless of political beliefs and regardless of which side, to say that process is essential to a Republican form of government. It will not work if we lose that piece of our system. And so we've got to fight for that. And having that transparency is essential. I, I agree, and I think I'll take the the last word on this one, which is that I think that in the in these days where I can control like everything about my life from my smartphone and the levels of technology that we have, it is outrageous that we have election systems that still have um, potential not just for fraud but for stupid human error that we should be able to be preventing with the levels of technology we have now. Rick Green is a columnist, former Texas state rep. Um, Rick, do you have a website that you'd want people to check out? You bet. I'd love for them to go to constitutioncoach.com. Lots of questions about the Constitution now, and you can join us. We've got the largest Constitution class in history going on Monday nights, and it's free. So come join us, constitutioncoach.com. Very good. Sorry I didn't mention that earlier, Rick. Great to have you back on the show. We'll talk again. Thanks, Ross. Have a good one, man. Okay, you too.